Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Now, if you're new, uh, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors, and it is great to have you here worshiping with us this morning and studying God's Word. This is a very important day for many people to be here. And if you're a regular, I just want to stop and take a moment and just thank you. Thank you, by the way, for allowing Cindy and I to have the last uh, two weeks off. We took a vacation, but technically it wasn't a vacation. It was a staycation. In other words, we just didn't go anywhere. We just sort of stayed home. What we did was we cleaned. Now, honestly, we took two weeks to clean because here's what happens. When all your kids start to grow up, you still have all this little kid stuff in your house. And Some of you women are going, amen, amen. And then Cindy's father passed away, and mother had already passed away right before we moved here. So we got all this stuff from her house that came into our house right before we moved here. And then, you know, my mother passed away in October, and my father sold his house, and my father and his stuff moved here. So we had like three houses worth of stuff in one house. So it was time for some serious levels of deep cleaning. Yeah, amen is right. And so I think the Cherish Center was going to give me a dedicated parking spot because I made so many trips down to there. I mean, I ate plus truck fulls of stuff. So even though we didn't go anywhere, I can tell you this, that our house is clean and it looks really nice. And so some of you are jealous. So that's what we did for vacation, and we're happy to be back. Now, this morning, we begin a new series. This series is called, What Does the Bible Say About Sexuality? It's a short mini-series just during the month of August, and we're going to look at the topics of heterosexuality and uh, normal guy-girl relationships. We're going to look at homosexuality in the second week, and We'll spend our time putting our finger in the text so we can see what the Bible really says about homosexuality because there's a lot of discussion, but most of the time people don't put their finger in the Bible. The third week we're in this series, we are going to continue to look at homosexuality, but we're going to do it a little differently. There's a very popular book that was just published by a man named Mark Actemeyer. He's a Presbyterian, and it's called The Bible's Yes to Same-Sex Marriage, Why an Evangelical Changed His Mind. Now, I was actually down at the Arnold's Park, and I saw some teenager reading this. And apparently, this is a lot of the young kids are reading this book. And I said, like, okay, give me your best shot. I'm going to read this book and see if you can change my mind. Because this is the book that everyone's going to. And I'm going to tell you, he did not change my mind. But what I'm going to do is we're going to walk through some of the arguments in this book and tell you how to respond to them. So you'll be in a proper position to be able to dialogue with people who are using the arguments right out of his material. The fourth and final week, we're going to look at the transgender. And as you guys know, there's the whole Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner thing. There's even now Transgender Kids. It's a, a program on the cable channel, like mom wants her little boy to be a girl, and it's, all, it's, a, it's a total mess. So not my favorite topic to talk about, but it's something that we need to be prepared to think through biblically as Christians, because it'll be the topic of a lot of conversations that you're going to face with your friends this fall. And we need to just know the truth. So that's the goal of this series. This morning, we're going to look at heterosexuality. Just good old-fashioned, normal guy-gal relationships. 
Now, one thing is apparent. In the last 20 years, dating relationships have completely changed. You know, with the advent of the internet, and then you've got Tinder out there, you have this hookup, breakup culture where sex is now cheap. Sex is casual. Sex is without commitment. And it's, it, that's what's normative for almost everybody in our culture. And in dating, people are like, well, shouldn't we be sexually involved when we're dating? Because everybody is. How do you know everybody is? Well, didn't you see it in movies? I mean, I, we, were, we were watching Princess Bride last night, right? Princess Bride. What is Wesley and Buttercup doing? You know, we're kissing. You know, isn't that normal? Shouldn't, like, that's a kid's movie. Shouldn't people who are in a relationship together be able to kiss? Well, this is the kind of stuff that is going on in our young adult's mind. In fact, people are asking oftentimes, well, let me back up, just to give you an example. Not in this church, but in a church I served before I came here. I found myself one evening talking to three young married men in the church. Their fathers were church leaders, not all in that one particular church, but they were all elders. And uh, these kids, I discovered, they were married, but they were telling me about how they lived with their spouse before their wedding night. And they're like, well, doesn't everybody? I'm like, don't you know that God's plan is that you save sex for marriage? And they're like, no, it isn't. And I found myself three guys trying to tell me, the pastor, I was wrong because I was telling them that premarital sex was to be saved for marriage. And these were the elders' kids. This is the state in our church. The pressure from this world is acting like a battering ram against you, young adults, to break and to crush your virginity and your purity because you're saying everybody's doing it. Certainly I should be doing it. And if I shouldn't be doing it, like the whole thing, you sort of say, well, I should be doing at least some things. Weren't they kissing in Princess Bride? Now, this morning, we're going to have answers to these questions. The question we're going to focus on is how far is too far? What does the Bible say about how someone should express themselves sexually with the people they're dating. The Bible is very clear, and we're going to get those answers today. Now, I framed our outline for this morning's message in a series of questions, and this first question is foundational, because this, the answer to this question will not just help us uh, navigate the study of this morning, but it'll help us navigate all the subsequent studies in this series. And here's the question. Why did God make us sexual? Why did He make a man and a woman? And then He poured all these hormones into the body. So you're like really attracted to one another. And you, you have all this sexuality. Why weren't we just made like amoebas? You guys remember those from biology class? What does amoeba, an amoeba do when it wants to reproduce? You know, like split into two pieces, right? Why didn't He do that? Well, I'm going to give you the answer right up front. And here's the reason God made us sexual beings. God made sex and God made marriage to make a living picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. 
God made sex and marriage so we'd have a living picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. God created sex and God created marriage. Both of them were created to be earthly appetizers. Everything we love about them was designed to whet our appetite for a much deeper, a much richer, and even more satisfying relationship that is designed to be ours through G- with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Anybody here uh, like marriage? Oh, boys, all bad relationships. Anybody like marriage? Yeah, oh, yeah. Anybody like sex in marriage? Yeah, right? Thank you, Cindy. I was worried. (laughs) But you know why? God gave every single thing. God gave sex and marriage just to get you a taste of a greater intimacy between Christ and the church for all eternity. Some people read their Bible and they go, well, you know what? The Bible says that in marriage... No one's going to, or excuse me, in heaven, no one's going to be married. What a bummer. And in one sense, that's true because it very clearly states there is no marriage in heaven. But in another sense, that's not true because there is marriage in heaven. Eternity kicks off with what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Who's the groom? Jesus. Who's the bride? We are. You liked your wedding day? Everything you loved about your wedding date was just a little taste of a much greater wedding day that you will be a part of through Jesus when we're married to Him for all eternity. That's what we look forward to. Now, where do we get this from? The Bible. Put our fingers in the text at Ephesians chapter 5 where it's very clear. Now, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All the joy and pleasure and satisfaction of marriage is just designed to get you, um, give you a taste of the intimacy that is ours with Jesus for all eternity. And because um, the relationship between Christ and the church runs parallel with a relationship between a husband and a wife, there's a whole bunch of things that you can derive from that. For instance, uh, oftentimes people say marriage is egalitarian. What they mean by that is a husband and a wife are equal, and they, are just, they work together, and they're just complete equals. The Bible doesn't say that. 
The Bible says marriage is complementary. Well, and there's different roles that a husband and a wife play. And you say, well, where'd you get that? Isn't the relationship between a husband and a wife supposed to parallel the relationship between Christ and the church? What did Christ do for the church? Christ pursued the church. Christ literally died for His church out of love for His bride. Husbands, you know what your cue is? Be like Jesus. Pursue your bride. Lay your life down every day for your bride. You may not have to die all at once on a cross, but you die to self every single day out of love for your bride. Now, ladies, isn't this what you want? A husband who doesn't sit there and say, you're all about me and satisfying me, but a husband who says, I'm here to lay my life down out of love for you. Isn't that what you want, ladies? The reason you want that is because you are designed to play that role and to receive the kind of love that Christ has for the church. And men, what you're supposed to pick up is when you look for a wife, you're supposed to find a wife who is like Christ relating to the church. How do we relate to Jesus? What do we do? We honor Jesus, don't we? We delight in Jesus. We submit to the leadership of Jesus in our life because we know He's good. He loves us. He dies for us. We can trust Jesus. And women, that's your cue. Your goal is to submit to the leadership of your husband, to delight in your husband, to honor your husband, and to support your husband because He lays Himself down for you like Jesus laid Himself down for the church. Now, guys, let me just tell you something. Isn't that what you want in a wife? You want a woman who's not going to rebel against you and not challenge you and undermine you, but you want a woman who delights in you, who honors you, submits you, and supports you. That kind of a wife, it, it just encourages you to do everything you can for her. And why do you find these roles so natural? Because they come from the relationship between Christ and the church. Because earthly marriage is designed to parallel that heavenly reality. In fact, then Paul jumps to Genesis 2.24. Remember that? For a, and he defines marriage, incidentally. And, well, excuse me. And he says here, not just, God didn't just define gender, but he had defined marriage. And marriage was created by God, by the way. It's going to, a husband shall leave his wife, you know, or leave home, and then he will hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's marriage right there. And by the way, the state does not define marriage. Uh, the Supreme Court does not define marriage. God defined marriage in Genesis. And here's what it is. The guy gets independence. He leaves home. He can take care of himself. And then it says he holds fast. Use the King James. He cleaves to his wife. What that word really means is he makes a solid commitment to a woman. 
It is a commitment, by the way. Just so you know, the word cleaves means hold fast and not be able to let go. It was actually used originally as a military term to refer to a soldier in battle that was running in panic the whole time, going for his life with the sword, and he cleaved to the sword so that even after the battle, his hand could not let go of it. Literally, his fingers had to be peeled off by his friends because he was holding fast to his sword. That's the same way a husband commits to a wife. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, or sickness and in health. Till See it? And then what's the final thing? The two become one flesh. Then there is marital intimacy. <laughs> Today, we get this backwards. What we have is young men who want intimacy from women, but the young men are still living in their parents' basement. <laughs> they haven't got financial independence, and they're not making any commitment to the woman they're having intimacy with, to be with her and her alone. They're with her and everybody else. You see how it's completely backwards? Now, by the way, the Bible says that intimacy is extremely powerful. Intimacy bonds people. In our culture today, sex is quick, it's cheap, it's casual. You go check on Tinder about some of the guys who are bragging, like, I was with 23 women, I was with 40 women, just hook up, break up. You know, I, I can see that stuff. But sex fuses you because the two become one flesh. In fact, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6.16? And do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two will become one flesh. The idea is here that you do not have sexual intimacy with anyone that is not your spouse. Because sex connects you and fuses you with people. Now, oftentimes, uh, we here don't have premarital sex, and the reasons are given are pragmatic. Nothing wrong with pragmatic reasons. Don't have premarital sex because you can come down with an STD. It's true. Don't have premarital sex. There could be an unexpected pregnancy. That's true. But Paul doesn't use those lines of reasoning. He says, you don't have intimacy with, sides, with anyone besides your spouse because what you're doing is you're shattering, you're destroying the picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Because intimacy is to be saved for your spouse and your spouse alone. Let me show you what I mean. Christ saved Himself for His bride, didn't He? Husbands, save yourself for your bride. Christ united Himself to the church and to the church alone. Husbands, unite yourselves to your wife and your wife alone. Christ never divorces His bride, even when she becomes unlovely. Husbands, you never divorce your bride, even when she becomes unlovely. Christ is in a monogamous and a permanent relationship with us. Young men, when you marry a woman, you are in a monogamous and permanent relationship with her. Are you seeing the parallels? Is this connecting with you? How Christ relates to the church is how a man is to relate to a woman in marriage and why a man is to save himself 
before marriage and to be intimate with his wife on his wedding night alone? Life is not about us, folks. Sex is not about us and our happiness and our need. Life is about honoring Jesus. And our sexuality is given to us so we can get married and image Jesus to the world in the way we relate to one another. That's the big picture. Now, what I did was give you something that's foundational. This idea that sex and marriage are created by God and they're given to us to image the relationship between Christ and the church, it colors our understanding of heterosexuality and you can imagine how this is going to change the way we look at homosexuality and transgender. You see how it changes everything? And what I'd like to do for the balance of this message is just focus on dating and heterosexuality, which is where most of us are today, and see how this image of Christ in the church changes dating today. So here we are, question number two. Why doesn't the Bible talk about dating? Because if you're like me, when you were young, you opened your Bible and you're like, okay, concordance, dating, where is it? I don't see it. What am I supposed to do? Okay, God, how far is too far? And what am I supposed to do with dating? I got the marriage thing down. Okay, but what about everything else? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible does not talk about a dating category of relationships. It only gives three categories, and here they are. Someone is either family, family relationships. And by the way, what do you think with sexuality is supposed to be like in the family relationship? Right. Here it is. None of you shall approach anyone of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. What this means in our house is even though Deanna's brothers love to prank her, when she's in the bathroom, she's off limits. Right? Because you do not approach a family member to uncover their nakedness. Period. Well, here's the other category. Marriage relationships. What do you think this says about nakedness? Real good idea, right? Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So if you're married, the commandment of God is not to deprive your spouse, unless you're in a temporary prayer meeting. Now, trust me, I've been doing the ministry long enough, and I know a number of you deprive your spouse, and it's not because you're in a prayer meeting. What happens is I've seen people who decide to become sexually cold to their spouse, or if they are intimate with their spouse, they provide intimacy in a very begrudging way. And the reason they do that is because they've completely missed the picture that marriage and sexuality in marriage, and the joy of sexual intimacy in marriage is given to us for a reason, to bless our spouse. And the joy of that intimacy is to whet our appetite for the greater intimacy that we will begin experiencing at the marriage supper of the Lamb when we're wed to Jesus for all of eternity. Now, some of you, because you hold out sexually on your spouse or you give sexuality begrudging to your spouse, you need to repent. 
Because it's unbiblical. You're not imaging the relationship between Christ and the church because it's commanded to be part of your marriage. The only other relationship out there between, besides family and marriage is what's called a neighbor-style relationship. Well, and how much sex are you supposed to have with your neighbor? No. And some of you guys are like, this is old lady who lives across the street. She's my neighbor. I'm like, well, what would you do with the old lady? Nothing. That's right. Very clear. Here's what the Scriptures say. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So here's the deal. No problem with the old lady across the street, right, guys? Not interested. But what happens if the lady across the street's not an old lady? In fact, she's a, somebody who's your age, and she loves Jesus. And you guys start talking, and you're like, hey, we really enjoy being together, and I, I'm attracted to her. She's attracted to me. And then you, Well, what should we do about this? And Paul says, it's real simple, get married. <laughs> Don't start fornicating. Don't start playing around. Just get married. After that, there are no other categories. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, I understand, Pastor Kurt, we, there's this final act of sex. We want to avoid that. But you're saying that everything else before that final act of sex is really off limits? I mean, come on. It was in Princess Bride. They kissed. Well, let's think about this. What constitutes sex? Who here remembers the Clinton and Monica Lewinsky scandal? Anybody remember Clinton and Lewinsky? Now, what was his famous line? I'll see if I can say it. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Well, what did that mean? Yeah, look, at it, look it up online when you go home today and study it. It means he did not do one final act with this particular woman. But he did a lot of things with that woman besides that one final act. Do you think Hillary was happy about it? Do you think she was ready to wring his neck? Because he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. <laughs> no. As soon as he started treating her anything different than a neighbor, as soon as he kissed her, as soon as he touched her, he was beginning to have sexual relations with that woman. Think of it this way. Say you come home from the office and you discover that your wife has baked a beautiful chocolate cake. And she's there in the kitchen working away. She says, I'm going out tonight. I'm with my girlfriends. One of them is having a birthday party. I'm bringing the cake, so don't eat the cake. Um, your dinner, it's in the refrigerator. Just heat it in the microwave. Leave the cake alone and eat the dinner. And so she goes into the bedroom to, you know, what girls do. Finish getting ready to go out. That prettiest thing. You're sitting there in the kitchen. Cake. Microwave dinner. Cake, microwave dinner. You say, well, she won't notice if I just take a little bit of the cake, will she? So you start cutting a sliver, and you put it in your mouth, and you taste it, and it's, oh, it's so good. She said, don't eat the cake. Well, I'm not eating the cake, technically. I'm just tasting the cake. I'm just chewing the cake, but as long as I don't swallow, I technically have not eaten the cake. So you spit it back out. You say, well, I could probably try that with more of the cake, so you cut another piece and 
eat it and, or you chew it and taste it, then spit it out. In fact, you do this all the way around until there's just one final piece of the cake that is left untouched. You're like, well, I hope she doesn't notice. So you scrape all of your chewed up cake back into the, the pan, you know? And now she comes out of the room looking all pretty and looks at it and she goes, I told you not to eat the cake. And you go, I technically didn't eat the cake. I just tasted it and chewed it and I saved the final piece. Let me tell you, is that going to work for her? Absolutely not. Because when you took that first piece of the cake, you're doing what? Eating the cake. When Bill Clinton reached out and had his lips touch Monica's lips, was he technically not having sexual relations with that woman? As soon as he moved beyond the neighbor relationship, he was starting to eat the cake. This is what the Bible says. Let me give you another angle. How did people date in the first century? And this is why you probably find that when you look up dating, you don't find people going on dates in the first century. Because in the first century, a woman's chastity and purity was essential for her to get married. So fathers, their job was to protect their daughters. And a do fathers didn't allow their daughters to go out in public unsupervised and without an escort to, care, to, to watch over them. In fact, fathers often cloistered their daughters and kept them separated from young men. Because for them to get married, they had to be a virgin on their wedding night. In fact, if you look this up in the Old Testament, you'll find uh, that the father of the bride got to keep the bedsheets. I'll let you look up why. Proof of virginity. That's the deal. Had to have that. Now, were there women that uh, were not pure? Yeah. They were usually called the prostitutes or the mistresses. Did men have sex with them? Yes, but a woman was to be kept pure for her, day, for her wedding night. This is the standard uh, for Old Testament and New Testament propriety. So when you look up dating and say, like, who are the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are going on dates where a, like a young man and a young woman are isolated together by themselves riding on the backseat of a camel? You know, it's not happening. Because a young woman was kept pure for her wedding night by her father. Knowing these backgrounds, let's go ahead and look at modern dating. Number three, what is the problem with modern dating? Throw that up, Jeremy. Remember, there are only three biblical categories of the relationship between um, men and women. You're either somebody who's your family member, no sexual relationship, neighbor, or marriage. Now, the problem is we come along and say, well, I'm dating this person. And so we started to insert a fourth category. Thanks, Jeremy. And what you need to understand is this category does not exist in Scripture. The Bible says a woman should be treated like she is a neighbor or a family member until the wedding night, in which case you treat her like she's married to you and sexual relations are legitimate. When you're dating her, you do not have any form of sexual relationships with her. Not just for pragmatic reasons, like you could inflame your passion, or if you became too inflamed that you could get an STD, 
but because of pictorial reasons. You're designed to image the purity of Jesus Christ for the church. Jesus saves himself for his bride. Husbands, you save yourselves for your bride. So I don't care what you call your boyfriend or what you call your girlfriend. Just realize that even though you may call them your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you are bound by the sexual propriety of the neighbor relationship until you go to the altar. Now some of you are saying, I don't like that. I'm, it's not my opinion. It's just a scripture. Some of you are saying, this is hard. I know it is. But this is biblical. And some of you are saying, I've never heard this before. And the reason you're saying you've never heard this before is because we've been so immersed in a sexually charged culture that we think all kinds of sexual expression, even the beginnings of sexual expressions, are normative. Back to Princess Bride. So, let's go ahead and flip on the next page here. Why is modern dating bad for women? And by the way, when I talk about modern dating, I'm not talking about like some guys and some girls going out together as a group so they get to know each other. I'm not talking about that. I'm, talking, I'm not talking about the activity. I'm talking about the relational category where you say, you know, me and this guy, we're dating. That's a very bad thing for you ladies because here's what happens. When you're dating a guy, dating implies exclusivity, that he is for you and you alone. And when a woman is in an exclusive relationship with a guy, what does she start to do with her heart? Starts to give her heart to him. And when she starts to give her heart to him, what does she tend to do with her body? Starts to give her body to him. Because there's security, because we're, we're dating. Ladies, do you have any security in a dating relationship? No. What is keeping him from saying, you know what? I want to break up with you. He breaks up with you on Thursday, and he goes out with a different woman on Friday. What is stopping him from doing that? Nothing. Because there is no real security in this quote-unquote category of a dating relationship. You want security to be able to open up to him? You know where security is found? At the altar. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. Till death do us part. By the way, your name goes on my checkbook. You have full right and full access to all of my money. Everything goes together. That's security. Now you know you can trust him because he's given everything to you in a really irrevocable manner. That's when you open up to him. But before the wedding light, you do not open up to him. Think of it this way. Imagine a, a mountain climber going up the side of one of those steep peaks at Yosemite. You know how they climb up and they have a rope and they put these pins in the rock? If they fall, the rope would grab them and the pins would hold them. So imagine the guy's climbing up and he says, this is crazy. There's hundreds of feet below me. One slip and I could completely die. This would destroy me. But I'm okay. I've got the rope. I've got the pins. Everything's going to be fine. He reaches the top. That's good. That's over with. And he starts to pull his rope back up. And he realizes that as he's doing that, the pins, now that the rope is being pulled through them, start falling out of the rock crevices. 
he was putting them in wrong the whole time. When he climbed, all he had was the illusion of security. He didn't have any real security. Women, modern dating relationships are bad for you. Uh, as a category, I'm talking a relational category. All you have is an illusion of security. And in that illusion of security, you want to give your heart and you, you want to feel like giving your body. And no, because the guy, he hasn't made any real commitment. He gets intimacy without commitment. The only place commitment is found is at the altar. Now, I, I know how this goes. You say, okay, pastor... I can agree with this. I understand that all of my sexuality is to be saved for my wedding night. The only categories are friend or marriage. There's no mysterious middle dating category in between where you get to do some things. But what am I supposed to do? I mean, how am I ever going to meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright? This is going to be crazy. I'm going to be single in 70. Well, let me help you. Here are some clues on how you should begin to look for somebody to date and ultimately marry. Number five, how can I know, how can I get to know someone of the opposite sex? Let me introduce some new terminology. Number one, pursue a dating friendship. Dating friendship. What I mean by that is when you meet someone of the opposite sex and you think you want to get to know them better, you say, hey, I would like to pursue a friendship with you. And this is a dating friendship. We don't, we're not going to be doing all the romantic and sexual overtones. We are bound by the categories of a neighbor relationship until we're married. But I'm interested in just getting to know you better. We're going to have a dating friendship. Now, what you do is as you get to know one another, if all of a sudden you say, you know, this is a nice person, but it's really not the kind of person I really want to be with, you just say to them, you know, I've really gotten enjoyed getting to know you, but I'd just like to be a regular friend right now. And you just, no harm, no foul, nobody's hurt. But if you're interested in moving forward, what do you do, guys? You bring on the ring. And you propose and say, you know, I wouldn't like just to be in a dating friendship with you, but I'd like you to be my wife. You propose. And if she says no, well, then you know. Next thing you need to know. Keep the sexual and romantic boundaries of a neighbor relationship when you're in a dating friendship. Which, by the way, I'm, all I'm going to say, you know, I understand this is hard because we have hormones like, what does it say in Song of Solomon? I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In other words, like, don't stir up your passions until it's the right time to express your passions. So here's some uh, ways to help you. Number one, when you're in a dating friendship, get accountability. And here's what I would suggest. You're a guy and you're in a dating friendship with a girl. You find a guy that you can really trust who knows and loves Jesus. And you call them up and you say, you know, I want you to be my accountability partner. Every week I want you to call me. And I want you to ask me the tough question. Don't just say you can ask me the tough questions. Ask me the tough questions. Ladies, get a different accountability partner who is also a godly woman who knows and loves Jesus, who you look up to, and tell her to ask you the tough questions each week. Because when you know you're going to be held accountable and you've asked to be held accountable, it's a lot easier to be accountable, isn't it? 
Number two, avoid time alone. In other words, you don't go hang out at their apartment, apartment, just the two of you, like till midnight or one o'clock in the morning. That's just asking for trouble. You don't go hang out in the back seat of one another's car to all strange hours. What you do is you try to do your dating friendships publicly. You do them with a group or you do them at some friends' houses. So you are in a social situation with other people. And there's a great benefit of this, guys. Because it's just the two of you, this girl that you're dating or the guy you're dating, all they do is focus on you. But when you're in a social situation, you get to see them interact with other people and you can observe it. And you're in a much better position to evaluate who they really are. So, you don't do time alone. Number three, you keep an outward focus. An outward focus means that in most relationships, all the guy and and girl can do is just think about each other. All they care about is one another and their relationship. And that's an unhealthy thing. And outward focus means the two of you should be helping other people together, serving other people together, working together at something else besides the two of you. And if you can't do that, red flag, something's wrong. Number four, don't begin a dating friendship when it can't go somewhere. In other words, uh, if you're in high school, I would really discourage you from getting serious with somebody because where can it go? No place and you spend the rest of your high school with one foot on the gas, one foot on the brake, very frustrated about life with your engine revving, and you can't go anyplace with it. Now, say you're in college, and you start a dating friendship, and you meet somebody who is the person you think you would like to marry, and you propose, and they say, and you're thinking, yes. You say, well, I've got two or three years left of college. I can't do anything about it. Oh, yes, you can. Get married. Don't fornicate your way through college. By the way, ladies, just so you understand, um, let me put it this way. When a guy gets the milk for free, he has no incentive to buy the cow. Just don't take it in the wrong way. But honestly, when you've given away your intimacy to the guy, what commitment does he have to make any, what incentive does he have to make a commitment to you? It's true. Number five, keep a dating friendship short. What that means is if you're in a dating friendship, you should know within 6 to 12 months whether this is the right person for you or not. If after 6 to 12 months you still don't know if this is the right person, I can tell you it's not the right person. Move on. Don't stay there. And um, number six, make a straight line to the altar. When you propose to somebody... The time of engagement is a time to prepare for a wedding. It is not a final vetting process of over a year to think once again if this person may or may not be right for you. When you propose, what you do is you prepare for the wedding and keep it short. Okay, lastly is this. Oh, by the way, one of the great benefits of dating friendships where you intentionally tell people we are not going to have romantic and sexual overtones guiding and controlling our relationship is this. You get to see a person for who they really are. Because as soon as you start to bring intimacy and sexuality into a relationship, you put on rose-colored glasses. And all you can see is the wonderfulness of the sexuality and the joy of the relationship. And then what happens is you, you get married. 
And then after a while, you're married. All of a sudden, the rose-colored glasses go off, and you say, well, I never saw that about them before we got married. I never saw it coming. Well, you know why? Because all you could see was the other person's gender. So if you leave the sexuality out of it, you're in a much better position to evaluate if this person is right for you. Number three, be clear on your boundaries and intent. What I mean is most likely the person you will date, or should we call it dating friendship, and marry is not in this room. Most likely they have bought the whole dating category of the world. And you go to date them, and all of a sudden they're going to be like, well, shouldn't there be something we're doing together? Shouldn't we be kissing? It was on Princess Bride. Shouldn't we be doing... And you need to be clear. No, there's only friend, neighbor relationship and there's marriage relationship. You need to re-preach this sermon to them. And you need to tell them, I am not looking to be somebody's girlfriend. I am not looking to be someone's boyfriend. I am looking to become a wife or I'm looking to be a husband. That is what I'm shooting for. I'm not looking to give fringe benefits along the way. I'm looking for purity for my wedding night because Christ saved himself for his bride. I am going to save myself for my bride. Because the way I date and the way I relate comes directly from the way Christ relates to his church. Men, I want to put a special challenge to you. As many men, we're usually, almost always, and we should be, the drivers in the relationship. When you are out there and you're looking at ladies, you need to be clear. You need to communicate this. And you need to stop looking for girlfriends. Because if you're looking for a girlfriend, you're looking for somebody to fit that dating category that doesn't exist. What you are looking for is a woman to be your wife. That's your goal. And because that's your goal, you save yourself for your wedding night. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for your clear teachings on sexuality. I know a number of us, even as we hear this, we are filled with regrets and we see the sin of our past and we just confess that to you and we repent of our sin and we cling to the, the grace that is offered us in Jesus Christ. A number of us also are young adults who are just entering into this whole dating and dating friendship category. And I pray that this message is very clear to them. And they save themselves for their wedding night as Christ saves himself and gives himself exclusively to his bride. Lord, I ask that this church would be a church filled with people that image to the very twist twisted and warped and delusional world around us what the right picture of sexuality looks like as it comes from the relationalness and the purity and the fullness and the passion and the intimacy that is seen only between Christ and the church. We ask this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.